ask you this. Let, let, let me ask you this. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Sports Central. Chicago Sports Conversation with Adam Hogue. Go, 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 go. This is Sports Central. On demand and streaming live on WGNRadio.com. What's up? I am back. It is good to be back in Chicago. Spent a week out in Florida, not working. A lot of my colleagues who cover the Bears are in Florida working. I decided to go to Florida and not work. Seemed like that was fair. Uh, Needed some time off to kind of charge up for what is definitely going to be a crazy April of baseball and NFL draft coverage. And I'm looking forward to it, though. Tomorrow is opening day. That's so awesome. I can't wait. White Sox uh, get underway in Kansas City. The Cubs are in Miami. And we're going to have White Sox baseball on WGN tomorrow. I will have your post-game show afterwards. And so I hope that you diehard White Sox fans who listen to Sports Central will be listening tomorrow as we go through our first post-game of the regular season. Can't wait for it. Our producer is Ben Anderson. My name, of course, is Adam Hogue. This is Sports Central. It's Wednesday, March 28th, 2018. Got a great show for you today. Kevin Fishbane from The Athletic. He's one of those guys who's in Florida working at the NFL owners' meetings. He's going to jump on the show. He's still down there in Orlando. Uh, Give us some of the highlights from talking to Ryan Pace, Matt Nagy, George McCaskey talks at the owners' meetings. And Kevin managed to get a sit-down with Ted Phillips, which you should read uh, at the athletic.com. We'll talk to him a little bit about that because there were a couple of interesting nuggets in there that I wanted to pick his brain on. Uh, the NFL made some rule changes. You know how I am with rules in football and referees. And they made the change to the catch rule. It is somewhat close to what I've been screaming about on the show for the last few months, but not quite there. There's still a problem. And we'll address that. There's also a change, uh, what I I think is a good change that everyone's freaking out about with this helmet thing, head-to-head contact, we'll get into that too. Luke Canellis, one of the faces of Loyola right now is that as Loyola makes their incredible run in the Final Four, he was on the Steve Cochran show earlier this morning, we'll bring that to you as well, and of course we'll finish the show with Buried Headlines. Um, Real quick though, as I return from vacation, I need to give everyone some vacation advice if you don't mind. Uh, I was in Key West for a week. Never had been to Key West. Very cool place. Uh, A lot of people say it's like the adult spring break. I could see some of that. Uh, Some people seemed a little confused that we brought a three-year-old there. It was fine for kids. It was fun. But if if you ever go down to Key West and decide to make the boat trip to the Dry Tortugas, the Dry Tortugas is an island a remote island about 70 miles off the coast of Key West, which, of course, is an island, too. Um, And it's an old Union Civil War fort. It's very cool. It's crumbling in pieces. And Hurricane Irma actually did more damage to it. There's a wall that goes around the entire outside that creates a moat, and Hurricane Irma blasted a 40-foot hole in this wall, which shows you just the power of a hurricane to be able to do that. Um... But anyway, it's a very cool place in like just crystal clear, gorgeous blue water. Uh, It's a pretty sweet place. So a lot of people like to go to it. There's a boat. It's a ferry that takes you out there. All right. You can also go by seaplane. I recommend the seaplane. And here's why. If you show up at this ferry, 7 o'clock in the morning, and they say, hey, guys, it's pretty windy. The seas are 5 to 10 feet. And I'm an experienced boater. I know that 5 to 10 feet, that's significant. Well, it kind of turns out it's more like 10 to 15 when you got to the, uh, you know, the keys are pretty protected by shallow water and island, but there's one stretch where as you get out there, you're pretty much in open water. And it was, man, probably the worst experience, one of the worst experiences of my life. You're inside this boat, and my I got seasick, which I've never been seasick in my life. My three-year-old got seasick, which you just feel awful about because he has no idea what's going on. And my wife did not. So she was like, and thank God she didn't because I don't know what we would have done. But because I was useless. I mean, I was, I was out of it. 
But my wife said that pretty much 75% of the people on this boat were seasick. So you're trapped in a boat with everyone around you sick. That's rough. That's rough seas. It's bad enough to be sick, but then everyone around... I mean, it was... just the sounds, like I still, like I would go to bed two nights later and it was like I would have nightmares about it. That's how bad it was. And then it kind of ruins your trip because you're in this beautiful place once you get there, but the only way back is on this boat and you got to go back through it. So you're just, you're just dreading it. So if you ever go to Key West, I recommend making the trip to the Dry Tortugas if it's a nice day. And if you show up, like they don't give you refunds. And apparently, I talked to one of the the guys on the ship. They do this trip even in worse water. Like I, I go, is that as bad as it gets? And he goes, well, that's about as bad as it's been this month. But we had we had a rough January. It was about twice as bad. I can't imagine twice as bad with the seas. I mean, this thing was. You ever seen like deadliest catch? Yeah, yeah. I mean. I'm I'm not I'm not exaggerating. I mean, it probably wasn't to that level. And of course, you're in gorgeous blue water, not the coast of, of Alaska. But um, I mean, this thing was going up and then all the way down. Like it was, it it, it was bad. And so, if you get there and they say, "Well, we can't give you a refund, but the seas are this bad," they don't say don't go. It was bad enough that I wish we had just eaten our money and not gone. So anyway, that was a that was the worst part of the vacation. The rest of it was uh, pretty relaxing, very very fun, and I am charged up and ready to be back. But ooh, so so was it worse the first time or or coming back? So my biggest mistake, and I should have. Ast- Unfortunately, that was like the coldest day. We had actually some cool weather at the beginning, and that high, the temperature that day was only sixty-eight. I hate complaining about weather in Key West, but when you go on vacation to the Caribbean, you're rooting for eighties, not sixties. So that when you leave early in the morning, it was still like fifty-nine, sixty degrees. So we sat inside, and about seventy-five percent of this boat was inside. I have enough experience being on boats that I. Well, I've never been seasick. I've certainly gone under, you know, like in the cabin of boats and not felt great. So it's better to sit outside. And I wish I had just bitten. You know, we need a three-year-old with us. You don't want to be freezing cold outside. I think it would have been better if we sat out there. So on the way back, I made sure to get out of the boat way early. So we got a seat outside. And the seas were a little bit better and you were outside. So it ended up being fine on the way back, which I wish I had known that because, again, it like ruined the whole trip when you're there because you're like... How much does it cost to get on one of these seaplanes? Because I will, I will trade everything to get on one of those planes and to get back on this boat. Uh, so maybe that's another piece of advice. If you go, just do the plane. Don't worry about the boat. All right, uh, plenty of football to talk about today. With uh, and we're going to start this with Kevin Fishbane from the Athletic here. Uh, but you know, the owners' meetings are. I like the owners' meetings because a lot a lot of things happen that set the stage for this upcoming season. Usually, there's one or two big rule changes. Uh, there certainly have been big two big rule changes here this week that we're going to get into. And then last year, I was there out in Phoenix, and that was when the Raiders officially made their move to Las Vegas. At least that's when it was approved and everything. So there's usually a ton of news that comes uh, from the owners' meetings, both on a bigger NFL scale and also just with the Bears because the way it works is the um, they have the coaches breakfast where all the coaches are available. It's a more intimate setting where you kind of get to know coaches a little bit better and let's face it, our access to Matt Nagy so far, the new Bears head coach, has not been that great. So those that went to the owners meetings had a good chance to sit down with Matt Nagy, Ryan Pace as well, the Bears general manager, uh, and uh, George McCaskey, I believe, also spoke today to those reporters who are down there. And Kevin Fishbane from The Athletic is one of those reporters who is at the owners' meetings in Orlando. Kevin, I believe this is your first owners' meetings experience. How has it gone? 
Uh, it is Adam. Thank you for having me on. And uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been good. It's a you know interesting owners means from the Bears' perspective because obviously the new head coach and you know they have the quarterback, so that kind of changes the tenor of things. Maybe than it had been like uh, in past owners meetings. But uh, you know there wasn't a, a ton to get at with these guys because uh, you know, we we have talked to Ryan Pace uh, and Matt Nagy recently. Um, but you know it, it gets them in kind of a, rela- a bit of a more relaxed and sunny, warm setting. Yeah, what what was the highlights from sitting down with Matt Nagy at the breakfast uh, yesterday and in, in that more relaxed setting that you're talking about? Yeah, well, I was really intrigued by him kind of breaking down his offense and kind of the verbiage he uses and where he sees each guy kind of playing. And, and it wasn't necessarily new information, um, you know, because those of us who have been researching this and talking to the players and, and reading about what Matt Nagy did at Kansas City, we kind of knew how these guys would fit. But um, this was the first time we got to talk to him about Allen Robinson and Taylor Gabriel and Trey Burton. Uh, so I found that interesting. You know, he just kind of saying what positions these guys play. I thought a lot of it on Trey Burton was interesting because, you know, he confirmed what Ryan Pace said, which is, you know, that was a position the two of them talked about on their plane here from Can- or to Chicago from Kansas City. Uh, so clearly Trey Burton was high on their on their needs list and someone they really wanted. And I asked Nagy about, you know, well, that, that, that's all well and good, but he's never had more than, you know, 400 yards receiving. Um, so obviously there's somewhat of a projection there, but uh, they're very confident um, that Trey Burton's going to be an impact player for them. You know, why is this tight end position so important? I, I you know, I, look, it, it seems so silly to go back to the offense. The Bears were just in, but they, they, they just could not find ways to scheme guys open and create mismatches, and they just seemed too reliant on uh, what the defense was allowing them to do instead of forcing the defense to do things. But it seems like Trey Burton will be kind of the key piece in creating matchups not only that favor him but the rest of the offensive pieces that are out there on the chessboard as well yeah so you know he talked a lot about how it's it's called the u tight end um which it's hard to say that and not think of you know the u um but we'll we'll, we'll get by it we'll get through uh <laughs> you know he lines up in the slot you know so it's a lot of what travis kelsey did so i think like uh, an ideal formation uh, personnel grouping was would you have Allen Robinson as your X who'd be outside you'd have Taylor Gabriel as your zebra or Z which would be the other kind of outside receiver and then Trey Burton is the U in the slot and then you'd have you know Deion Sims or Adam Shaheen as the Y blocking and you'd have Jordan Howard or Taylor Gabriel in the backfield and I think what he likes about Burton is it's just that you, know, you just mentioned like the mismatch situation and we did like every once in a while we would see it with Zach Miller I mean it, it, that that's a type of play I think that they that they see in Trey Burton just that kind of athletic pass catcher. So he talked about he goes, you know, listen, if there's a you know smaller, quick defensive back, he'll have the size advantage. If it's a bigger, slow linebacker, he'll have the speed. It it, it all sounds simple, but as you know from the past couple of years, watching this team, listening to the decision makers, it's still kind of refreshing to hear it um, when talking about a player and, and, and the ways that they're going to, you know, as you said, scheme to get these guys open. Was today the day you got to talk to George? We did talk to George uh, just about just wrapped up about an hour and a half ago. So, um, your reaction to and that's George McCaskey, obviously. Uh, your reaction to the um, let's be honest, the most important item: the orange jerseys are coming back. Yeah, the orange jerseys are back. Uh, so, if the Bears don't make the Super Bowl, I think everyone would be pretty surprised. Um, <laughs> with you know, it, it, it is amazing um, everything we all all the writers accomplished here all the quotes we got, all the people we spoke to, nothing will be remembered more from these owners' meetings than the the Bears announcing that that orange jerseys will be back in 2018, which, you know, is look, it's it's fun. I get it. People are into it. So, you know, George brought up the 1930s when they wore the orange jerseys and they, you know, had like the longest winning streak at at that time uh, in football. So you know, they're just looking to bring back uh, bring back some good luck from the from the 1930s. I like the orange jerseys, and and I've always said this: it's the design of the throwbacks they've been wearing the last few years is fine. I don't have a problem with it. I think they look cool. But for those of us that are working these games, it was so hard to read the numbers, and and not just on um, not just from the press box, but. Even when you're watching the film, going back on the All-22, which isn't perfect HD, it's kind of grainy, it's hard to read the numbers. So I hated those jerseys just because of that. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on those. Um, now, those aren't like gone for good. I, I think that they're trying to figure out the rotation. You know, it could be that this year it's going to be the orange, and next year they'll go back to throwbacks. And okay. They'll try. To, yeah. So I think they're going to have to figure out because what he was explaining to us is there's the NFL's got all these rules about the, the third jersey and how often you can have a third jersey, and it, it's like there's like a five year period where you can have one where you can change the design. I have to go back and read my notes and see how he explained it. But, yes, it will be the orange jerseys this year. I believe it's just going to essentially be the actual normal Bears jersey, just in orange, just the colors reverse. Yeah. Um, I, which I think, I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be good luck. Um, and, you know, I think maybe they would never, I don't think they'd admit this, but probably most people sell a lot of orange jerseys this year. Yeah, I mean, that, that never hurts, too. Anytime you bring out any kind of new clothing, the, the fans buy it up and i'm sure they'll do it again here okay so uh what else from george mccaskey today was there anything um nothing uh too groundbreaking you know one thing i I picked up on you know we asked him about matt Nagy, and the first thing he said was ryan pace believes in him and i think it's just kind of reinforcing this idea of how much confidence bears ownership put in ryan pace to make this decision and that ryan's comfortable with it george is comfortable with it and then they're good to go so, you know, I, I thought that was interesting. He talked about, you know, getting to spend some time with Matt Nagy uh, this week. You know, they all have their families here. So it, it's just a more kind of intimate setting for all of them to spend time with each other and get to know each other. So he, he talked about that. Um, you know, the, one of the one of the big topics this week that did not really get addressed was the national anthem. And we actually had not talked to George since you know, everything happened in week three with the Pittsburgh game. Um, so he, he touched on that a little bit and, and I, I, he kind of just reiterated this, the idea, of course, that, you know, they talked to the players, he said, you know, long talk with Sam Acho. And, and the main thing was, you know, just that they wanted it to, you know, be a team decision and they support the players. And he's very excited about some of the social um, kind of some of the social justice platforms that they'll be working on in Chicago uh, moving forward. All right. Well, um, one of the coolest things that you did while you were in Orlando, and it's Kevin Fishbane from The Athletic, is you had a sit-down, a lengthy sit-down with uh, Ted Phillips, which required two parts. Whenever you have two parts in print, that means you had some significant time with Teddy uh, down there. Uh, very interesting conversation that you, that you had. Uh, I encourage everybody to read it at The Athletic, and if you're not a subscriber, you should be. Um, but what were some of the things that stood out to you from your conversation with Ted? And then I have a couple more specific follow-ups, too. Well, so th- there were a few things I wanted to get at with him. Um, you know, uh, there were some kind of, like, I don't want to call it news, but one like little thing I was really interested about is the, you know the, so the renovating house hall. There's going to be a brand new house hall, new facilities, new fields there. And my first thought when I heard that was, well, this could lead to the Bears joining all the other teams and moving their training camp to being at their facility. And he kind of he kind of he did not. Um, that that notion is not to be worried about for the folks that like Bourbon A. They are still very passionate about their agreement with ONU and going to Bourbon A for training camp. And also there's like a logistical, you, you can't necessarily bring all these fans into Lake Forest to their facility. So that was just something I kind of wanted to learn a little bit about in terms of how House Hall impacted that. Cause I know that's something the fans really care about. And then the other thing, and you know, this in this town, there's such a, persona, I guess, and reputation for Ted Phillips, um, fair or not, about his role with the team. And I just was legitimately curious what he thought of it. And so he, you know, he talked about his role during the coaching search, and he was the one that said, I know people were saying that, you know, Phillips is meddling again. So I was like, well, what do you think of that? And he, so he knows that that's the reputation he has in town. And he kind of spoke to that and, um, and you know, just kind of showed confidence in, in his experience and his leadership with this team. I think sometimes we forget that he's been with the organization since the early 80s. Um, and he's been in a lot of different roles within the organization. Um, so I, I just thought, I thought it'd be interesting for fans, you know, to look at that. I mean, listen, some people are obviously going to see that and still have their same opinions on him and his impact on the team. Uh, but I think, you know, some people could look at it and, and we actually, I even saw it in the comments. Some people looked at it and they're like, oh, okay, I kind of like him now. So that wasn't like necessarily my intent. I just thought, I just thought it'd be important to give a voice to someone who's gotten a lot of heat in this town. Well, I like, one thing I liked at what he had to say about that was, because people call him the accountant. He's like, I haven't been an accountant in 30 years. 
Yeah. And, and you kind of forget that he has been working for an NFL franchise for a really, really long time. The more you do something, the more you know what you're doing. So I did like that from him. But I do want to get back to the training camp because I, that was one of the specific questions I was going to ask you. Because, I mean, he actually says, this direct quote, I don't anticipate training camp coming here for those reasons. And here being, of course, Hallis Hall, Lake Forest, unless he was talking about Orlando. Um, but that would be weird, although I wouldn't complain. Uh, you, you know, that's a pretty strong – because, look, the way I've been putting this is they have a contract with ONU. They are very important to the town of Bourbon. That is a sensitive subject to address publicly when you're, meanwhile, building what could be more than adequate enough to have a training camp in uh, you know your own facilities without having to move and put all the infrastructure that you have to put in place to have a, a training camp that far away from your home facility. So that's where I, you know these denials have been. You know I was okay, whatever. But that's a pretty strong denial. I don't anticipate training camp coming here for those reasons. I mean, context always matters. Tone always matters. You were the one actually talking to him. Was it as strong as it reads on the athletic? Um, let me see. I, I think it is to an extent because I do believe that the front office, legit, you know, they legitimately love the Bourbon A connection. It gives them an opportunity to to really connect with the fans, you know, south of Chicago. Um, you know, folks that you know might live obviously in the Kankakee area or even south of there, Bloomington, even down as far as Springfield, Champaign. It's an easier commute to get to Bourbonnet where you get to see the team for free. Um, you know, I, I think that the McCaskey family and Ted Phillips, I think they really do respect that and appreciate it. And as I said, you just you just simply can't bring thousands of fans to House Hall. It, it's just not logistical, um, certainly at this point in time. I will say this, though. You know, you could... I mean, I don't really know the NFL rules on this. Maybe you do, but, like, theoretically, I think the Bears could have their training camp if they wanted to at Hallis Hall and just not open it up to the fans. And then what they would probably do maybe is, like, spend a weekend at ONU. Yeah. Now, I don't I don't have any reason to think that's going to happen. Ted obviously didn't come anywhere close to suggesting that, and neither has the McCaskies. But I could, here's the thing, and, and you know this, I think the people that maybe have – a problem's a strong word, but I think the people that would prefer having training camp at the facility would be the coaching staff sure. and the football operations staff. Because what happens is the team size is the same, but these guys just need more things. The facilities need to continually be upgraded. That's why they're upgrading Hallis Hall. So you know, it's it's kind of an arms race at LNU to make sure they have the. Now, it's not the fields. The fields are fine. It, it's make sure they have the medical equipment, the, the fitness, the workout rooms, everything that the Bears players and coaches need to make sure they have a successful camp. So if it gets to a point where the Bears coaches and players and, and maybe Ryan Pace doesn't believe that they're getting that, then I think when push comes to shove, they're going to have to find some kind of compromise. But I, I do firmly believe that the front office, led by the McCaskies and led by Ted Phillips, do appreciate um, what they get from Bourbon A and do plan on having camp there as long as they can feasibly have it there. Well, and there are still ways to get your team exposed to the fan base in training camp, and and you're right. There's nothing, there's nothing that says you have to allow fans in the house hall to have a quote unquote training camp. But we've seen the last two years after they've left Bourbon A, they have gone to a random high school in the area for one night. Uh, to have a night practice in front of fans there, and you can do instead of maybe instead of maybe one of those, you could do three of them and do them in in different areas, uh, and still get around to the fan base. So there's definitely other ways to do this, and I just maybe it's not in the short term. I still just don't believe that they're going to always be in Bourbon A going forward. Yeah, and I will. I also throw out there, and I, I think you would probably agree. Uh, I think the uh, previous head coach uh, probably did not enjoy Bourbon A. Um, because I don't think he was a big fan of all these fans coming out and watching his team's uh, practice in full. Yeah. So I don't I don't know how Matt Nagy feels about it. Um, we don't we haven't really gotten a good sense of his paranoia yet. Um, but I can it, it certainly seemed like John Fox um, was not did not certainly enjoy uh, his bourbonation. <laughs> well, did you know this? I I was told, and I didn't see it at the time. You know the two point conversion they ran against the Vikings, which. 
we all did our part in understanding that we were not allowed to report on specific plays being run. We all saw it happen in Bourbon A when they ran that play, and it was not reported. We respected those rules. But the one thing we always bring up with that is there's all these fans there that have Twitter, that have camera phones, and I was told that the video of that play actually did end up on social media. Yeah, I I never saw it, but um, I mean, there are fans that just sit there and record like every right. red zone play in the red zone drills. So you remember when um, Sam Acho like laid out um, who was the backup tight end, Greg Scruggs. Oh, uh, good old Greg. Ago. Yeah, and it was it was a big deal because like this like dirty hit and like Scruggs like went to the hospital. Um, I was writing about that recently because Sam Acho and I talked about it a little bit like a year later and I like was like I, I you know I was like trying to remember what, like the hit and try to describe the play and there was a crystal clear video I think you actually were the one that retweeted it that like a fan took from the stands yeah. that I found so yeah I mean listen, I think the Bears understand there's only so much they can do in that in that capacity but you know of course from a competitive standpoint, if you had the fewer privacies you have in front of you know five to ten thousand fans, um, you know that that that's going to lower less than that. And, I, and I'm curious to see. I know we're kind of going on a tra- training camp tangent here. I am curious to see how attendance is this year. Um, it was bad, I think, the last two years. Yep. Um, it was a little bit better last year, maybe. But I'm wondering. You know that Mitch is the starter. You've got this new head coach. You all. It, it, there's something to be said to when your new players are offensive skill players as opposed to like defensive guys. Like you could come to camp and watch an Allen Robinson or Taylor Gabriel or Trey Burton, and I think these fans now know what they can get, what they're going to see in Tariq Cohen. I, I think I'm not saying the excitement's going to be because they think the team's going to be good. I think they'll think the team's better. But I would expect much better attendance this year in Bourbonnais. Yeah, but you know what? I thought that that was going to be the case last year, too, because we knew Trubisky wasn't going to be playing in the games when the game started. And so that was your best chance to come out to Bourbonnais and see him practice every day, and it still wasn't that good. So Yeah, it wasn't. I wondered if that was just people were just fed up with the situation, too. Maybe. It's maybe. almost like they didn't want to be around the team knowing what was, you know, that that bitch did have to play in a backup role. All right. Well, great stuff on the athletic while you uh, while you were there in Orlando, and you're still there in Orlando. But I know you're on your way back right uh, today, and uh, I encourage everybody to check out uh, his sit down, Kevin Fishbane sit down with Ted Phillips on theAthletic.com. Good stuff. Thanks for coming on today, buddy. Yep. Thanks, Hope. All right, Kevin Fishbane uh, from the Athletic joining us here on Sports Central. And we will take a quick break here. I want to uh, come back and talk about some of these NFL rule changes, the catch change, and the helmet-to-helmet change here with the significant rule that, I mean, these two things, one I think is just going to create less anxiety, although I don't think it fixes it. The other one I think is going to create more anxiety, although it still might be a good idea. We'll be right back here on Sports Central. What? Um, yes! What? Um, now! What? Let me think, let me think. Ooh. Yeah! Good talk, Coach. Thanks. Maybe we should stick the radio. He's got a point. <laughs> Chicago Sports Conversation. This is Sports Central with Adam Hogue. Quick White Sox note. This just coming across. White Sox have acquired right-handed pitcher Ricardo Pinto from the Philadelphia Phillies in exchange for international signing bonus pool money. Pinto, 24, uh, split 2017 with the Phillies and the Class AAA Lehigh Valley. Um, Just seems like a guy who could end up being a solid reliever. He goes on the 40-man roster, which is now at 39, and... I think the White Sox just tweeted that Pinto will be assigned to Class A Winston-Salem. So probably just a way to work him his way up there, um, but could be a piece for uh, the White Sox going forward. They just give up some international signing bonus money, which uh, considering the moves that they made the last couple of years, and especially uh, with Luis Robert last year, that's understandable. All right. Mention the NFL rule changes. And... If you've been listening to Sports Central from the start or Hogan, the Hogan Johns podcast in the past, you know how I've been about some of these rules and specifically the catch rule. 
which is just been ridiculous over the last few years. And this idea of going to the ground has been ridiculous and unnecessary and took away a uh, a touchdown from Zach Miller in New Orleans, which I still don't understand. You know, anytime someone writes someone national writes about these this rule, they mention the Calvin Johnson play in twenty ten at Soldier Field, rightfully so. Des Bryant, 2014 in the playoffs in Green Bay, rightfully so. And then they bring up Jesse James from last year, the Steelers uh, tight end, who had his catch taken away, rightfully so. But no one mentions the Zach Miller play from last year, which to me is the most notable one um, because his career likely ended on that play too, and they took away the touchdown. Anyway, that's a different tangent, but... Here's what's going to happen. Going to the ground is now gone. Thank you. They made the right call. Now you must control the football, establish yourself inbounds, and perform a football move. The third part is what I don't like. Perform a football move. Now, what's not actually written into the rule book in the past, I don't know if it's going to be now, but what hasn't been written in the rule is this idea of a third step. That always bothered me. Because you always talk about having two feet down. And then you would randomly have Al Riveron or uh, Dean Blandino on TV or Mike Pereira on TV mention, oh, this is the players making the third step, which constitutes a football move. Apparently this could be a third step or a, some type of lunge to make a legal catch. Again, that just creates gray area to me. And what I've been saying is, the ball's in your hands, you have two feet down, that's the point where it's a catch. Anything that happens after that happens. That's essentially what they're doing here, except they're adding this football move thing to it. And I just don't understand it. And I know Dean Blandino came out this week and said it's just going to create a whole new set of debates. And I agree. Because now we're all going to be sitting on our TV, at our TVs on Sundays and saying, well, was that a football move or not? What constitutes a football move? So I appreciate that they address this. I think Roger Goodell correctly identified an area of the game that fans did not like. And the one thing I do like about Roger Goodell's tenure of being NFL commissioner is that he does seem to pay attention to what the fans want. Like last year, and it didn't get talked about enough, it was very very minimal change, but they, they changed some of the commercial breaks so that you wouldn't have touchdown... You would have extra point, commercial break, kickoff, commercial break. And there would be like 10 minutes in between actual football plays. And they sometimes they were forced to still do it based on how breaks happen because you still have to get, get your commercials in. It's not like the commercials, the commercial time decreased, but they found a little area where they can make it view, more viewer-friendly. And those are some of the things that Roger Goodell has actually paid attention to, and I appreciate that. This is a much bigger thing, this idea of what is a catch that no one's been able to figure out for years. And and unfortunately, I just don't... We'll see how it plays out. But I don't think they fixed it. I think it'll be better, but I don't think they fixed it. And I also want to see more emphasis on what how I think it was correctly applied in the Super Bowl, which is indisputable video evidence. If this is going to go to replay, I am tired of seeing... And this goes for all sports, too. We just saw it in the uh, the Duke-Kansas game the other day in the tournament where they reversed that play. At the end, it was like maybe his hand was barely touching the ball for one frame more than the Kansas... Get out of here with that. If, if it's not 100% obvious, and I think Rich McKay brought this up with me, the head of the competition committee, when we talked to him at the Super Bowl in Minneapolis, he said 100 drunk guys in a bar. If 100 drunk guys in a bar all agree that the play should be overturned, that's when you overturn it. And if it's not that obvious, then don't do it. That was the whole point of replay to begin with. 
So maybe this, and and so the, for those two controversial catches in the Super Bowl, they didn't overturn it, and I think that was right the right call in both situations. And I want to see that more going forward, especially since Al Riveron has shown no ability to be able to get these right. I'm just sorry. That's a fact. I can't believe he's still in charge of the officials. Um, But he is going forward. And I'm a little troubled that he's overseeing a major catch change here. And now he's going to be overseeing a major style of play change. With their now, there's now going to be a 15-yard penalty for lowering your head to initiate and making contact with your helmet. And this thing was rushed through. In fact, they don't even really know all the punishments yet. Is there going to be a targeting rule where you can actually get ejected? But it is now a foul when a player lowers his head to, quote, initiate and make contact with his helmet. Which I think is a good thing. I agree. I think think it's a really good call. There's been a lot of backlash to this because it happens all the time. Um, And it does. But college football has started to address this. The NFL barely has. They've had a rule the last few years that you can't do that to a defenseless receiver. But otherwise, you are allowed to target in the NFL. And they're dangerous hits. So you're asking a lot here for players to change their mentality. But the one thing I do like is if it's starting at the high school level and they're being trained at the college level with this rule, keep it consistent to the next level. If if these players are coming out of college with that rule that you can't lower your head as you make contact, there's no reason why they can't adapt I understand why it might be hard for some of these other players, certainly these old-timers that are all screaming about this rule change. But it's it's almost like in baseball, completely different subject, but they have pitch clocks at lower levels now. They're trying to get this ingrained in them so that they, when they get to Major League Baseball, they're pitching faster. And I don't necessarily want to see a pitch clock at the Major League level, but that's the idea here. Why should then all of a sudden they get to the NFL now they're allowed to their, to lower their head again, which is dangerous. Yeah, it's it's. <clears throat> I agree. I agree with where you're going with that, Adam, because it creates a standard quality of play throughout. Yeah. Now the targeting rule, if there is a targeting rule attached to this, could be controversial. It will be controversial, uh, especially if it goes to replay. Uh, I saw one thing where uh, Tom Pelissero maybe today tweeted that they're optimistic that they won't have to get replay involved, that is so naive. There's no way that you can judge these things in the moment. And Northwestern had, I think, five or six targeting ejections last year when it was all said and done. I was on the sidelines for all of them. A few of them are obvious and the right call. And a couple of them, like Patty Fisher's in the Music City Bowl, if I were to teach a kid how to tackle, I'd show him that video. And he got ejected. After replay review. So, that part of this is going to be controversial. But I think the idea of the rule is fine. In fact, good. They're doing the right thing here. Alright, we're going to take a break. Uh, running out of show here. But Lou Canellis was on the Steve Cochran show earlier today. We'll take a quick break. We'll bring that back to you. Want to make sure we get some Loyola conversation in here as the Ramblers head to the Final Four. We'll be right back on Sports Central. WGN. This is where WGN Sports Central lives. Streaming right now with your host, Adam Hogue. All right, a lot of football happened while I was gone with the NFL owners meeting, so needed to address a lot of that stuff. And um, tomorrow's show, well, it's opening day. 
So tons of baseball tomorrow. Both White Sox and Cubs. Looking forward to it. Andy Mazur is going to sit in with me on Sports Central as we get ready for the White Sox opener against the Royals, uh, which, of course, you can hear the game on WGM. But with a lot going on in the sports world, especially here in Chicago, the biggest story, the most unlikely story, uh, it was fun to follow while it was gone. It it was kind of hard to follow while I was gone, but I managed to watch most of the, the, the Loyola games that went on last weekend. Uh, such a great story to have the Ramblers in the Final Four. Love it. Lou Canellis from Fox 32 is a Rambler. He's covering it. He's in um, San Antonio for the Final Four already. He was on the Steve Cochran Show this morning talking about his beloved Loyola Ramblers. Lou, because you can't really yell Canellis. Canellis! Canellis! That's what they were yelling at you at Northwestern that day. No, no, See, they were booing. Boo? No, they were booing. They were no. looking for you and Lou. We can definitely boo. There was no Lou on the field. We <laughs> no. can confirm. They try were it. Booing. Try it. They actually did a Lou search. <laughs> they couldn't find a, a Lou anywhere. It was all booing. Uh, Lou Canellis scheduled to join us in just a couple of seconds. He is in San Antonio uh, covering those Ramblers, and uh, he is as giddy as a schoolgirl because he is a Loyola graduate. You did graduate, didn't you? Don't tell anyone, but yes, I did. I made it through there. It took me a little longer than four years, but I made it. Were you the last guy they gave a complimentary uh, degree to before they really started uh, cracking down? <laughs> exactly. And the only reason they gave me the degree, Steve, was because back in 1985, I was calling the Loyola games the last time they were in the tournament. So this is in lieu of payment? In the old alumni gym, where you'd have, I, you were up in the rafters, and even Lou at five seven and a half had to bend down wow. to avoid the pipes to avoid the pipes where I would call the game. Wow! Wow! Well, listen, you've done your time, uh, Dave. Say hi to our friend Lou. Uh, Lou, you bring back memories. The the first professional. I don't think I've told you guys this. First professional play by play assignment of my life was in Alumni Gym. It was Loyola and Minnesota. And uh, the the Ramblers upset the Big Ten visitors, the Golden Gophers. <laughs> and I was... I got notified about two hours before the game. They needed someone to do the game. And so I went up there and working by myself, hadn't seen either team. It was really fun. Ah, it sounds like you're Loyola, Loyola won that game, by the way. That, that was that place got really, really loud. And I know that uh, it hasn't changed a whole lot in Gentile Arena either. That place gets loud. Well, it gets loud when it gets full, but that's been Porter Moser's, you know, toughest challenge since he's been here for the last seven seasons, Dave, is getting fans to come on. I mean, when was the last time you heard of a head coach out in the student center handing out hot dogs with his players, begging students to come to the games? I mean, the reality is in the conference, in the Valley Conference this year, Loyola had the smallest, the lowest attendance of any team is that right? in the league. Yes. I don't think that's going to be a problem next year. <laughs> I hope not. Honestly, and in all seriousness, as a Loyola grad, you know, obviously the world has jumped on the bandwagon for whether it's because they want to follow the Ramblers or they want to follow Sister Jean. But I, I am really hoping that this continues because I truly believe, and maybe it's because I'm an alum, but I believe that Porter Moser, because he's a Chicago guy, Naperville, Bennett Academy, lives in Wilmette, as he says, a Chicago Catholic kid, I believe, and Dave, you tell me if I'm wrong, that he can create something over there in Rogers Park like Mark Few has done at Gonzaga or Brad Stevens did in Indianapolis at Butler or Mike Krzyzewski did at Chapel Hill or in uh, Cameron. I don't know why he can't, as long as the commitment is there, which apparently it is from the administration at the university. And, you know, I meant this point on the air a couple of times the last few days. I see if you back me up on this, Lou. In, in cases where other teams have suddenly burst into the limelight in Chicago, when the Blackhawks started winning again, uh, when the White Sox won the World Series in 05, when people jump on the bandwagon, there's a tendency from the fans who've been there to say, hey, wh- where have you all been? We have all these yeah, little bitters on our bandwagon, yeah. right? I haven't heard any of that from the Loyola fans. It's been more, hey, come on, there's plenty of room for you. 
Exactly. Well, here, we want everyone aboard. You guys see the Tribune today? I don't know if you opened up the sports section, but Steve Rosenblum wrote a a column today, and I don't know if you guys saw it. He took an email that he received from someone that worked at the university, and she wrote that you're lying, quote, we needed you, Loyola, even though we didn't know it was going to be you. And she talked about how it's pulled the community of Rogers Park together. And she came up with the reason cool. and how this this has exceeded sports, guys. This is about something positive in our city. Right. While the while the Bulls tank games and the Blackhawks obviously are going to miss the playoffs for the first time in a decade. And you've got your baseball teams in spring training and the Bears trying to get back on the winning track. Here is something and we know that Chicago is the greatest sports town in the in the world. Here's something to pull the entire city together. Couldn't and agree that's more. That's why I think that it, it, it's. I think it can last a while. The good news, too, is uh, these are really, really likable kids. It goes beyond Sister Jean. Have you seen any, even a whiff of trouble with these kids? Uh, no, and they play like a team. There's nobody that's throwing up 50 shots a game while everybody else just serves. Um, I, listen, I, 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 if I'm Michigan, I don't want these guys. They, they, the Loyola, that seems like Loyola's special year. It's it's a great college basketball team. Not one of these kids will play in the NBA, in my opinion. It's about working together, creating a culture, and then going out and executing it. And they've done it. And it, and it all starts with Porter. Listen, man, I've been watching the guy as a Loyola alum. The guy is as passionate and energized as anyone that plays on his team. And you follow the leader. And, you know, I'm so proud of these guys. It's unreal. I, yeah, if I'm Michigan, I'm a little worried. Because you know what? The first three games that they won, well, they won on last-second shots. And it was a different guy each game. And then they put on a clinic against Kansas State from the Big 12. And then you scratch your head and go, okay, wait. Maybe we shouldn't take these kids lightly. Who knows what could happen in the Final Four? Is this like 85 when Villanova went and beat Georgetown, right, Dave? Well, yeah, and and look, that Georgetown team, I think for a half, because I was there in Providence. Were you there, Lou, when uh, they played Georgetown, the Ramblers, that is, in the Sweet I was, 16? I was there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. they played Georgetown tough, and then uh, Georgetown was the defending national champ. So, I mean, you never know. It, it can happen. Andrea, say hi to Lou. Hey, Lou Ticanis, how are you? Kala, see hi, Andrea. See, we had to we had to do a little Greek there. Was that cursing? It sounded like cursing. <laughs> we'll do that later. We'll do that later. Hey, Lou. Yesterday, I mean, and covering this, obviously, you guys are, are are so into into thick of it. But I heard so many people say, "Oh, this is the last year. Porter's going to get more money and more money. Everyone's going to be after him now." What are the ins and outs of that? Is is is, is he going to be on the market now? I mean, obviously, people are going to be courting him. Where does and this is probably putting the cart way before the well, horse. Well, he should too. get offers for sure, don't yeah. you? Think? Well, he got tons of offers, but, you know, Dave just mentioned it in his sports cast. There were a couple of vacancies filled in college basketball yesterday, and the coach from Xavier, Chris Mack, went to Louisville and took the Louisville job. So now the Xavier position is open. And remember, when this whole tournament started back at the beginning of March, or middle of March, uh, Xavier was a number one seed. So there's a great opportunity to take on a program. But is Porter Moser going to leave Chicago, his hometown where he has become the most popular man? Is he going to leave Chicago to go to Cincinnati? I know for sure, I know this is a Loyola guy, that Loyola is going to step up and offer a much larger contract financially. Certainly hope so. Can they offer $3 million a year like some schools? I mean, the head coach at Wichita State guys gets $3.3 million a season. Loyola cannot raise Porter Moser's salary from four hundred and twenty dollars or $450,000 to $3 million. But they're going to give him a bump. And in my estimation, now this is Lou, I think they'll make him the highest head coach in the Missouri Valley Conference. Is it enough to keep him? We'll find out. I don't I, look. I don't know the guy, uh, but I do know that he seems like nothing but quality stock as well. And maybe that's a reflection, um, or that that helps reflect on his players too. Uh, quality from top to bottom. Money changes everything. But it doesn't mean he's going to take the money and run. He could be very happy and be here for a long time. Maybe he takes a different offer down the road. But I think he stays. I'd be very surprised if he jumped at this point. I would be shocked. If he left, and I truly believe that Porter sees an opportunity here. Again, he's built it grassroots 
from the start seven years ago with his type of kid. You know, something else I wanted to mention in the Missouri Valley Conference, Loyola's student athletes GPA is tops. So what he's done is he has taken that type of student athlete and built this winning basketball program. I believe that Porter sees what a Mike Krzyzewski has done in 38 years at Duke. And Porter says, I can do the same thing in Rogers Park in the city of Chicago. Just give me the chance. Quickie from Dave. Well, well, which is the same thing I think Chris Collins is trying to do at Northwestern. Sure. And, and, sure. the, and there's, there's one thing. This ride isn't over for Loyola yet, but uh, I, I think the expectations, he needs to look no further than a few miles north to know that just because you have a bunch of guys coming back next year doesn't mean you're going to have the same team next year. And this uh, this will be a, a, a tough coaching job after the success they've had. On, on one hand, they it's obviously a really good team. They bring a lot back next year, but... Uh, can you repeat? I mean, that's there's the expectations now will be higher. Oh, no, no, no doubt about it. But uh, I think the greater question we have at this point is if Lou had a baby name question coming up, say, in Lou's family, does he go with Sister Jean? Does he go with Clayton? Does he go with Custer? Does he go with Rambler, which I think is a great name? Uh, where are we going, Lou? Would you name your daughter Rambler? <laughs> well, Steve probably would. My, my wife will leave me before she allows me to call my baby girl a Rambler. How about, and, and, and uh, Andre, you would appreciate this. Okay. My dad's name was George. Yes. He passed away on, uh, 14, 15 years ago, and I met my wife in Georgia. So we're going with Georgia. Oh, oh that's really sweet. You're here. Beautiful. That's really sweet. Beautiful. Yeah. Good for you, man. That's a great call. Thank you. Because Custer would be a weird name for a girl. Yeah, Custer would be a little weird for my uh, baby girl as well. So I'm going to. Name is Clayton. <laughs> it's my little Clayton. Lou, we are so happy for you. That's a nice touch, man. It really is. Thank you, guys. Have a great weekend, and it's going to be a real test of your professionalism if this game doesn't go well. So for your sake and your blood pressure, I'm counting on a Loyola win as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If they lose on Saturday, I don't know if I'll be able to do the newscast at night. If you're a Loyola fan on your way out here, it's raining, but the temperatures are supposed to be near 90 the next four days, so dress appropriate. Oh, there you go. All right, man. Have a great time, and, and God Thanks, bless little guys. Georgia Rambler Canellis coming soon. <laughs> Thank you very much. So there he is, Lou Canellis. On the Steve Cochran Show this morning, uh, very passionate about his Loyola Ramblers and doing a great job covering them during this run. And I, I think that's the you know the biggest stuff in there is uh, I think everyone would like to think that Porter Moser is not going to go anywhere, um, but you know at a minimum they're going to have to pay him a lot more money because he's going to have offers and that that is. Uh, Actually, a good way to transition to buried headlines here because um, that was one of the things that we are gonna that I had listed here to talk about is the fact that Chris Mack left Xavier to go to Louisville, and this was a very interesting move because obviously Louisville's a great job or has been a great job. It's been been a great program, but. It's been a rough couple of years under the scandals that Rick Pitino has been involved in, including this latest FBI investigation, this big FBI investigation into corruption in college basketball. So you don't know what kind of penalties there's going to be in the future. And Xavier was a number one seed this year. And Chris Mack's done a great job there. So why is he leaving? It's green. It, it's always green. And that's the thing. Like We all... We all want to think our athletes and our coaches and everybody's going to be loyal, but it's it's you got to think of it more practically. Whatever you do in your life, if someone comes along and offers you a lot more money to do it there instead, it's not that easy to just say no, even if you're happy where you are. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting here with Porter Moser, but. You know, it's a great story, and just I, I'd say enjoy the moment for now. And could he stay here and develop something good? Like, look what Shaka Smart did at VCU for a long time, 
and they stayed competitive, but eventually he left for Texas. You know, so it'd be great if he stays here and continues to build this thing up. But long term, I think it's a little unrealistic. I think he'll never leave. And everyone brings up Coach K at Duke. That is such a such a different example. And college basketball was a lot different back then when he turned that into the program that it is. So, um, yeah. All right, the one thing I have to get to is we're running short on time here in buried headlines. But as I'm going to bed, going to bed last night, I see this highlight start littering Twitter. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who is the son of Vladimir Guerrero, who you probably know, Blue Jays' top prospect, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. The Blue Jays played the Cardinals in an exhibition game in Montreal. And there's still a lot of Expos fans there. Baseball's still very popular there. And Vlad Guerrero, of course, started his career with the Expos. And had a lot of great moments there. So his son now, in the stadium where Vlad Guerrero used to play, steps up to the plate with the opportunity to win the game. And this happens. All right, here's Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the crowd on its feet. We know what they want, and we know what Vladdy wants. Nothing, nothing, two out bottom of the ninth. Guerrero wearing his dad's old number 27, the 1-0 pitch. Swung on and belted! Deep left center field! Are you kidding me? Vladimir Guerrero Jr. just walked it off. The Blue Jays win it one nothing. Can I see the script you wrote, Elliot? Unbelievable. He's being mobbed at home plate by his teammates. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has just hit a mammoth home run. And the Blue Jays beat the Cardinals one to nothing. Somewhere in this world, there's a man with the same name as that kid that has tears in his eyes as we speak. That is unbelievable. What a cool moment. Fathers and sons in baseball. There's nothing better. And for them to experience that moment, there's actually, I I tweeted, uh, Vlad Guerrero was actually taking a picture from his phone. I don't know if he actually took it or not, but it was on his account uh, of him watching it. Very cool. Now, I haven't heard this yet, but this was in Montreal. We have the French-Canadian call of this moment with Vlad Guerrero Jr. how loud it is in there for an exhibition game I mean I realize this that game didn't matter but that was still incredible and uh, yeah I I don't know what the hell that guy was saying but it was interesting I, I kind of wish we had him here in Chicago a little bit yeah can, can you do post game like that uh, in French Canadian yeah no because that, that would be really exciting no, I think I, uh, maybe I'll dust off my French a little bit. And by dust it off, I mean learn it from the start. I could do a little Spanish, which would come in handy with all these prospects, but uh, not the French. Not the French. All right, we should get out of here. Uh, good to be back on Sports Central. It, uh, I missed you guys while I was gone, and I'm uh, really excited to go, get going with the baseball season. And the NFL draft heats up here in April, of course. Um, it's going to be a busy, busy month, and I'll be here with you the whole time, rested up, ready to go. White Sox and Royals tomorrow. So pregame on WGN officially starts at 2.40. Uh, we're, of course, going from 1 to 2 here on Sports Central. Andy Mazur will be in with me, um, working on a couple other guests. I know Jason Benetti is going to be on Steve Cochran's show tomorrow morning, so you can listen to that. We might bring that back depending on 
Uh, we're working on a couple of guests, too. So if we have the time, we'll play it. Um, but either way, Andy will be here. We'll get you ready for opening day. And we'll keep you, of course, posted on what's going on with the Cubs, too, as they play the Marlins on opening day. So be a big baseball day tomorrow on WGN and Sports Central. Any corrections today, Ben? Uh, the only thing I have for you is uh, if you want to fly to the Dry Tortugas, mm-hmm. it's uh, 600 per person for a full day, $342 for the half day. That's that's the seaplane cost. Yeah. I had a feeling it wasn't cheap. Yeah. The boat wasn't really cheap either. But, uh, I mean, it was cool, but it wasn't worth it. Not worth it. Right. I mean, if, you, if it's calm... It would be totally worth it. The boat ride would actually be a lot of fun. It's this giant ferry that goes 30 miles an hour. I mean, and I saw I saw a sea turtle at one point. One of the guys on the boat said he swore he saw a great white shark. And this was one of the workers on the boat. Mm, and, and I like, know about that area. It, uh, they're down there, but really? dolphins would be way more likely to see. Yeah. But he said he swore. He, he's on the boat every day, and he said it was different. I don't know. I don't know if I believe him. But, yeah, the seaplane might be a little bit out of the price range. But I badly wanted to get on it to go home so bad. You just, you just need to make friends with somebody with a seaplane. Right. That's that's how you do that. Also, it can't be very safe landing in choppy water. Oh, you you don't. And, and that's... I was kind of surprised these guys were landing. Obviously, it's calmer, closer to the island, but I was a little surprised these guys were landing in that, those conditions, too. Yeah, I, I would not think it, and that's that's a former pilot talking here. So, wow, uh, really? Yeah. Do those things have wheels on it? I couldn't tell. Depends. Some do. Okay, because I couldn't tell when they got back to Key West if they landed on a runway or where the hell they landed. Yeah, it depends on the plane. Okay. Well, we learn something new every day about our producer Ben. All right, we'll be back tomorrow. Opening day. Can't wait. We'll talk to you then.